there are a few things uh, more aggravating, at least to me, than, uh, than being misled, especially if, uh, if it seems to have been intentional. Uh, so I recently booked travel with, um, with a credit card points system. And, uh, and I discovered that the whole system of points was not nearly as good of an arrangement, not nearly as good of a setup as I thought it was. I've been led to believe that it was. Now, some of that is clearly on me for not reading all of the fine print. Uh, but some of the language and phrases and the things that are in big block bold letters, uh, they seemed to paint a picture that uh, wasn't really true. And uh, so I got the feeling as I was attempting to book and it was costing more and more uh, that I was being, uh, that I had been a little misled in all of this. And uh, I mean, this is how often how advertising works, right? Uh, you see something for free, but we all know there's no such thing as you know, something being free. Uh, so I, you know, I, it was a frustrating experience feeling like I'd been misled. I suspected one thing, but I got another and the whole thing just made me want to quit that whole program altogether, that rewards program on the spot. So if you know of one, I'm in the market. But uh, when it comes to what it will look like to be a Christian, what we can expect, the Bible does not treat us that way. The Bible doesn't treat us that way. It does not draw us in on some sweet promise of what life is going to look like in this life. To then only say once we're in, well, actually, you know, now there's something you need to know. It doesn't do that to us. Now, for some people, that is their experience. Uh, they professed faith in Christ with the expectation that, you know, life would be roses for them. Uh, and then they found out that that was not the case. It was contrary to that. Uh, but this kind of thing is either the result of being poorly taught by teachers who uh, do not teach the Bible well, who try to draw people in with guarantees about this life that the Bible just doesn't make, or it's the result of us not paying careful enough attention to what the Bible says. But the Lord tells us up front what we can expect. He doesn't do this. It's not the fault of the Bible. It's not the fault of Jesus if that happens. He tells us what it will cost. And what a good thing this is for us. What a kindness this is for us to just have it all out there and for this to be up front for us. It prepares us for what's ahead. It fortifies us for the life of faith that we're called to. It prepares us, strengthens us for some of the challenges that we will face by telling us in advance that they're coming. It removes some of the surprise it also helps us to guard against bitterness toward God, resentment toward Him when difficulty comes, because He's told us it's coming. If we're not ready for it and it happens, we can, how can you do this to me? But He prepares us for some of these things. In our text today, Luke 14, 25 to 35, Jesus does just this. He tells us what it looks like to be a disciple. And He calls on us to count the cost. So I invite you to turn there and read with me, Luke 14, 25. We'll go to the end of the chapter today. Luke writes this. 
Now great crowds accompanied him, it's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In these verses, there's three statements about discipleship. And then in between, there are two mini-parables that call us to count the cost. And then in verses 34 and 35, we have a warning at the end, a final warning. To summarize these verses, I'd say this. What Jesus is teaching us is that being a disciple means that one's life, a disciple's life is no longer their own, but wholly, W-H, entirely, wholly belongs to Christ. And we are to count on it. So for a true disciple, the one who has believed in the Lord Jesus, who's entered into his kingdom by faith, their entire life comes under the authority of Christ. He now takes precedent over all else. Disciples entirely belong to him. So I want to just up front make an important distinction here. And we made this back in chapter 9 when we looked at similar verses there. A person becomes a disciple when they become a Christian. And a person becomes a Christian by being born again, being made new within through repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very clear that that is a gift of God's grace, not anything we can do or earn. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, one place that says it explicitly. So we do nothing for this. Uh, The good news, in fact, is that forgiveness of sins and entry into God's kingdom is a banquet we participate in at no charge. We've we've seen Jesus laying this out. We are the poor, sickly people being invited to this great banquet. We've seen this in the previous weeks. So being a good enough disciple is not how one has their sins forgiven. And so what is before us today is Jesus is laying out the cost of discipleship. It's not, how do I get saved? But it's, what should I expect on the other side as a disciple? What does life look like when I belong to Christ? How do we recognize true disciples? And certainly, if we reject wholesale what he has to say here, then we can be confident that we are not his disciples. But if we affirm what he says, that it is good, it is right, that it is true, though we might struggle to perfectly conform ourselves to it, 
And we must again remember God's grace is our only hope of salvation and be reminded here of just the beauty of belonging to Christ and being totally His and utterly His, completely His. The born-again believer no longer belongs to himself. We've been united to Christ. He is now our Lord. So Jesus is showing again here that being a disciple means that one's life is no longer their own, but wholly belongs to Christ, and he's telling us to count on that. And so what does it mean to be, to, to wholly belong to Christ? Well, he gives us three things here. The first, <clears throat> wholly belonging to Christ means that Christ is prioritized over any other person. Christ is prioritized over any other person. We see that in verses 25 and 26. So in verse 25, we see that Jesus has moved on from the most awkward supper uh, that we can imagine, if you remember from the previous weeks, and now this great crowd is accompanying him. There are lots of people that are following after him. We've seen this throughout Luke. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, there was such a great crowd, they were pressing in around him, people were even being trampled. Some think that there were at times up to tens of thousands of people pressing in to try to hear him. There's lots of people crowding around, gathering but this does not mean that all of them are actual disciples of Christ. And so he lets them all know what true discipleship will look like, what they can expect. If they were to place their faith in Jesus, what would it look like on the other side to be a follower, a student of Christ, a disciple? He makes it plain here. And the words that come out of his mouth are jarring. They're a little shocking to our ears at least. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says we are to hate our own family, those that are closest to us. It seems an odd thing to come out of his mouth. Given all the commands to love other people, to care for our families, this seems strange. And I think that that's part of the design, to cause us to stop and to think about this, and to think carefully about what is it he's saying. Some point out the fact that uh, hate was sometimes used as an idiom uh, in Hebrew to mean love less. Not, so not, not meaning a vile despising, uh, but a lesser love. This seems to be the case, for example, in Genesis 29, 31, when it says that uh, Leah was hated by Jacob. Uh, there's no indication in the Bible that he you know, had some vile despising of her. He still cared for her. So they still had children. But it's clear that compared to his love for Rachel, his love for Leah was quite was a lot less, that Rachel was his favorite wife. Just as a side note, one more reason to obey God's commands for one man and one woman in marriage. But we'll leave that. But just an example where hatred means clearly a lesser love. So whether Jesus is using this word hate as that kind of an idiom or not, it's clear that that's what he's getting at. He's getting at the fact that our love for our family the ones that we are most likely to love the most in this lifetime is to be a lesser love than our love for Christ. 
It's either an idiom or he's intentionally overstating it to get our attention. In a parallel statement in Matthew 10, 37, he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this is the idea. Christ is prioritized now over every other person. Even, it says, our own selves. To love Jesus more means a number of things, but it means that we would take his word over anyone else's. What he says trumps anyone else's words, anyone else's ideas, even our own. If a family member says no to something, but Jesus says yes to that thing, then we go with the Lord's word. We go with Jesus. There are places where this is difficult. There's places where it can be tricky. For example, when we are called to honor somebody, like a parent or a spouse or somebody that we are in authority, we're under their authority, uh, and when their desires seem to conflict with God's. But the rule is that Jesus is first, that we obey God rather than man. And it even means that he takes priority over my own desires. So I want one thing. My flesh screams for something. But if he says something to the contrary, or he brings something across my path and his providence that I don't initially want, it means I bow to him. I submit my desires to him. For disciples, Jesus is now supreme. He is Lord. Nobody else sets the rules for us. He does. And he knows what's best for us. He knows what's best. He's worthy of our allegiance. He and his word take priority now over what anyone else or anybody else thinks or desires of us. Many people stumble at this point. Many people trip over this. I once heard a man excuse uh, his child's unbiblical divorce despite knowing that there were zero biblical grounds for that divorce. Why did he do it? Because he loved his daughter. Because he was deciding to, to side with his daughter even though it was a clear violation of Scripture. And I've heard many people, as I'm sure you have as well, who once thought, for example, homosexuality was a sin, but then someone they know uh, turns out they are one of these. They are a homosexual and now they've changed their mind. Well, now that I know somebody, that changes things for me. They've changed their mind. Not because scripture you know, was unclear or scripture changed or anything like that, but because rather they are choosing a person over Christ. But Jesus has warned us, you think back to chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, that we can expect division even within our own homes, even within our own families. And here he again says that the disciple is the one who prioritizes Jesus even above family and even above our own desires. Some of you live this battle, you live in this division with family regularly. You have division in your families, in your homes. 
You've had to take a stand with Christ when family or close friends would have you do otherwise. And now, and you've suffered various ways, in various ways for it. And now family gatherings can be awkward, they can be weird, they're uncomfortable. And as hard as this is, it's one of the costs. It's one of the costs that he says may come to us. And so this is a reminder and an encouragement to stay the course. That is not a unique thing that has happened to you. Your Lord has told you that this could happen. And so stay the course. And for others of us, that day may yet come. And here, Jesus is preparing us for that. That whatever comes, Jesus remains first. And his word is true. He is good. This prepares us. And the, and the more we uh, think about this now and we take our stance now and we say whatever comes, whatever any of my family members one day think or do, I must side with Christ. It will make it easier that if and when that day comes, we will take that stand. We're not trying to decide in the moment what do we do. We know in advance. It's the Lord above any other person. No matter how close we are to that person, no matter how much we love that person. For all of us, this battle of submission to Christ rages daily in our own hearts as we wrestle with our flesh. Which disciple does not feel the tension of his or her own fleshly desires burning up or within us, rising up, welling up, butting up against God's word or against the providence of God? You know, I want things to be one way, but in God's providence, they are another. We feel this tension. And Jesus says that the disciple is submitting his own self, dying to his own self, her own self, submitting to the will of God and to the word of the Lord. And this battle can be extremely difficult at times as the flesh will rage, but the disciple battles on. Why? Because we belong to Christ. He is our Lord. His ways are good. Mine are not Though my flesh is loud at times, uh, it is not true. It is not good. Jesus knows best. It is honoring to him. So we battle to submit to him. So to be holy, Christ means that he is prioritized over any other person, including our own selves. Secondly, holy belonging to Christ means that Christ is prioritized over every comfort. Over every comfort. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the second statement about what a disciple will expect. And it's really no less stunning. We're maybe familiar with these words, but it's not less shocking. The cross, of course, was an instrument of cruel, unbelievably cruel, torture and death. And because Jesus died on a cross... Uh, to bring about salvation, we can see now how the cross is, you know, has become a symbol of redemption for us. We put crosses on churches. It's, it's, it, you know, if somebody sees a cross, we know that that's, that's, uh, that, that means something. It's a symbol of Christian hope. We can see a redeeming character to the cross. And Luke's audience, as he's writing this to Theophilus and those who would read it, uh, they would certainly recognize this. But when Jesus first uttered these words, before he has actually gone to the cross, 
they would have sounded even stranger to these people. Some who were crucified, uh, would, crucifixions w- would vary depending on who did them, but sometimes they would be forced to carry their cross beam uh, up to the place where they were crucified. And we see this uh, with Jesus when Simon of Cyrene is made to carry his cross. This is what's happening there. Jesus says here we are to carry our own cross. And the point he's making, I think, is clear. That the life of the disciple will involve dying to oneself and suffering various afflictions alongside Christ. There's a tendency, and I think it's a natural tendency, there's a tendency to think that uh, if God is for us, then everything will go well for us in this lifetime. God, nobody is greater than God. Uh, we are right with Him. And so therefore, there's just this, I don't know, there's something in us that says everything should work out just really well for us. But the Bible consistently prepares us for the fact that various trials await us. There will be glory one day, but in this life, various trials await us, some of which are just the direct result of being a Christian. For example, in John 15, 20, Jesus tells us this, starting in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master." If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. He prepares us for this. James 1-2 speaks of Christians uh, facing trials of various kinds. There's many different types of reasons for our trials, including persecution, including suffering just on account of living in this sinful world. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We're prepared for this. It's going to come. It's not shocking or surprising. And yet many today try to lure people to the faith, lure people to Christ on the promise of, you name it, uh, riches, purpose, happiness, uh, joy, etc. And if those things are not carefully and biblically explained, the carnal heart will give its own definitions to these things. Come to Jesus for happiness. and we, Well, happiness to me would be everything goes really well and I make lots of money, so great. That's not what the Bible says. and Jesus warns us to the contrary. Uh, the more I read the writings of John Calvin, the more interesting I think he becomes. And it's only been in the last really couple of years that I've read him. Um, But in his commentary on this passage, he mentions how people yield so easily to sin when trial comes 
because they've, quote, pictured to themselves unmixed enjoyment as if they were to be always in the shade and at their ease. So we just, we, we, we imagine that life is going to be comfortable and good and easy. We picture nothing but rest and happiness and ease. And so when the slightest thing happens, we are rattled and we give in to sin. That's what he's getting at. And this is something that he knew well. After he had been saved, after he'd written his first edition of uh, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he had anticipated just such a life as an academic. In 1536, he was traveling to Strasbourg where he was going to uh, live and write and keep to himself and try to encourage the Reformation through his writings, quietly living out his days. But he was, by God's providence, forced to go through the city of Geneva, and he was confronted there by the leader of the Reformation in Geneva, a guy named William Farrell, and, and Farrell pressed on him to stay, to stay and be a pastor in Geneva. And Calvin had no interest in this. And, and Farrell um, basically cursed him if he were to leave. Uh, he said that God would curse your peace, he said to Calvin. Uh, you want to live out in peace, it will be cursed. And uh, Calvin later says that he was, he says he was so stricken with terror that he decided to stay. He was so sure that what Farrell said was going to happen, that if he went for his quiet life, it was going to be misery. He was so afraid of that that he decided to stay. Well, two years later, he and Farrell both, after two years of ministering in the city under great difficulty and duress, they were both forced to leave. They were forced to leave Geneva due to opposition and threatenings. Uh, the church and the state were much more aligned in those days, and so the city officials uh, forced them out. Some pastors had been arrested. Uh, there had been riots and things like that. And he would later reflect on that stint, that initial stint in Geneva, and he said, quote, I can truly testify that not a day passed in which I did not long for death ten times over. <laughs> he says his time was misery. But he used the word miseries, plural. And yet he also says he was not about to abandon his post had he not been forced out. And after a couple of years of being in exile, things had changed in the city, and he and Pharaoh were both invited back, and Pharaoh was going back. And he wrote this confession in a letter, Calvin did. He said, there is no place under heaven I am more afraid of. I would submit to death a hundred times rather than to that cross on which I had to die daily a thousand deaths. Pharaoh had written to him, impressing him, to cut, you know, telling him to come back to Geneva, and, and Calvin responded with this. He said, if I had any choice, I would rather do anything than give in to you in this matter. But since I remember that I no longer belong to myself, I offer my heart to God as a sacrifice. And so he did. He went back and he served the rest of his life in fruitful ministry in Geneva. He poured himself out there. He died young because, in part, because of his just unending service to the Lord. We are not Calvin. 
but we are likewise called to die to ourselves and to bear our cross. Christians are those who identify with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we will likewise suffer with Christ. We will face trials of various kinds. And yet Calvin in his commentary on this point adds this comfort. Yet let us also bear in mind this consolation. That in bearing the cross we are the companions of Christ. Which will speedily have the effect of allaying all its bitterness. That even as we suffer for being Christians as we bear our cross we are companions of the Lord himself. And that does ease the bitterness of suffering. There is a joy, there is even a joy to be had in bearing our cross. We stand with Christ. And we are even sanctified through this process, made more like him as God disciplines us through this. He is so wise in the way that he operates and works. We need this even if we were to grow. And as a loving father, he does discipline us. And we also know that the great rest for which we long is one that we await when Christ returns or when we finish our earthly days. And so our creaturely comforts are submitted before Christ. Obedience to him is of greater priority. Following him is of greater priority than any earthly comfort. So let us be reminded of this that this is good. And where we have lost sight of this, let repentance take its course. Let desire for ease and for a life of comfort take flight, if only we would be found in quiet submission to the Lord. Thirdly, holy belonging to Christ means Christ is prioritized over every possession. Prioritized over every possession. Let's look at verse 28 again. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In these verses, Jesus gives two uh, short parables to explain what he wants us to do with these statements he's making about discipleship. He wants would-be disciples to consider what this is going to mean, to carefully consider it, to count the cost of this. So verse 28 to 30, he gives a parable about someone who decides to build a tower. Such a person would first make sure he has enough money to finish the project. Right? The first thing you do, as any of us, if we were to do our home renovation, what's this going to cost? Right? Can we afford to do it or not? If he doesn't, He's going to get halfway through, Jesus says, he's going to have to abandon it, and everyone's going to scoff at him, right? People would mock, fool. It's foolish to start a building project without knowing what it's going to cost. 
Then in verse 31 to 32, he gives a second parable. It's a similar effect. He says that if a king is preparing to go to battle, he'll carefully consider if he's able to win first, particularly if his force is much lesser than the force he's coming against. He's got 10,000. He's coming against a force of 20,000. He's going to think very carefully if he's going to be able to win this battle or not, if he can come up with a plan to, to win it. And if he can't, Long before the two sides ever meet in a disastrous clash, he's going to send a delegation and he's going to ask for terms of peace. Which is to say, this king would count the cost. He would consider things carefully. He wouldn't act rashly and just send everybody into this unmitigated disaster. So this is what Jesus is wanting this crowd to do, to consider this, to consider this cost. There's no hidden terms or conditions. There's no fine print. He's not just trying to draw a crowd. He lays this out for them. And following after this, these two parables, in verse 33, he gives his third statement about discipleship. Verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The phrase, all that he has, is more literally, maybe better translated, all his possessions. Uh, that's the way that's translated throughout the book of Luke. So the focus here, then, is on somebody's goods. Uh, he gives all his stuff. He renounces all of his things. So it's, once again, a very strong statement. Disciples are those who say farewell, or they give up, they renounce all of their possessions, all of their stuff. Now, if we, if this were, uh, you know, to be, if, if this was literal, we actually get rid of every single thing we have, then we would be left with absolutely nothing outside in the cold. We would all die of exposure. It's, that doesn't really make any sense. That's not what he's saying. Rather, it's renouncing our dependence on these things. It's renouncing the idea that life is about the acquisition of stuff. It is saying goodbye to the grip that possessions have on us, and no more seeking our worth, our value, our life, our contentment in those things. It is embracing instead a willingness to use all of those things in service to God, to sell things when necessary, to help brothers and sisters in need. It is bringing all that we have under the lordship of Christ and laying them at his feet to say they are yours. I renounce these things, I give them up, they belong to you. I don't live for these things. I don't spend all my time thinking about these things and figuring out how I can gain more of these things and spending all of my money on these things. And that's not, how, that's not what I do. I lay them at your feet. They're yours. In Luke, Jesus has already warned us uh, many times about the danger of possessions, calling on us to store up treasures in heaven instead of on earth. He says in chapter 12, verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not exist in the abundance of his possessions. This is precisely the kind of idolatrous life that disciples renounce. We don't live for these things. We don't pursue these things. These are not our gods. It is the thorny soil here who makes an initial profession of faith 
only to turn back when the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things chokes out the word and it becomes unfruitful. So if Jesus is now our master, then money and possessions cannot be, and they are not. Jesus explicitly says this in chapter 16, which we'll get to in time uh, in verse 13. Our world is given over to the pursuit of stuff, the pursuit of possessions. And it's not just our society today. This has always been a problem. Clearly, it's a problem enough. Jesus has to say these things, even in the first century. But we are, without question, a very affluent society. And we like our toys. We like our things. Most people live beyond their means in order to acquire and accumulate goods. Advertising, we know, consistently plays off this covetous desire. The desire to to have new and better stuff. Attempting to make us feel inferior if we are without the latest thing. Though there's nothing wrong with our version. In this saying of the Lord here, it might seem harsh, or it might seem a difficult thing to do, but we need to recognize that Jesus knows better than us. This is God's good word for you. This is in our best interest for all of us. It is right and it is good to worship God above everything else. It is highly offensive that we would put anything else ahead of him. But not only that, it's, it's sinful for us, it's destructive to our own selves to make anything an idol. To hold anything above Christ himself. It's for our good. And so we need this reminder. We need to just reset, to check our affections again, to repent where necessary, to submit everything we have again to the Lord. Sometimes Christians seem desperate. Sometimes we seem, Christians seem desperate for people to like us and not to think we're weird. And sometimes this comes across in the way that we try to draw people to the Christian faith. But Jesus just lays it all out. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Paul does the same. He just, I knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He just lays the message out for people. And Jesus does that here. Here's what to expect. Count on. Count the cost. And one beauty of this is that if we can hear this and we can listen to this, and say yes to this, if we can agree that this is good and this is right, and that all of this cost is worth it, And though I don't do this perfectly, but I most certainly agree with it, if we can say these things and we can affirm that this is good and true, then we can have confidence that we are children of God. Confidence that we have been born of Him. That we're bearing fruit. If we can hear these words and say that what Jesus is saying is true and right and good. Though it costs us our very lives, We know we need the grace of God. We need the forgiveness that comes through Christ 
above everything else. So no matter what it costs us, no matter what the consequences might be in this lifetime, there's nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go. And though I may now even tremble at the possibility of what could come my way, by God's grace, I must stand because I have nowhere else to go. And what he's saying here is true. And whatever cross comes my way, I must bear it. A Christian is one who wholly belongs to the Lord. Freed from our slavery to sin, but freed to be a slave of the Lord himself. Verses 34 to 35 close this section off with a warning. Look at that again. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If salt loses its saltiness, it becomes useless. It's no longer salt. Its purpose is gone, and it is fit only to be thrown out. There's no value to someone claiming to be a Christian, starting out on the Christian life, not according to knowledge, only to then fade away. There's no virtue for these crowds to be really excited and have an emotional experience, only to then turn back. And Jesus says, the result of that is judgment, being thrown out. So this is aimed at these casual crowds who are doing what is popular at the moment. It's aimed at thorny soil hearers, the ones who claim to be followers of Christ, but who have not considered the cost, not really been born again, are not true disciples. And such people, when they realize the cost, when they're confronted with this, they conclude, no, I will not give these things up. No, I will not submit to Christ. And he's saying here that such people can be sure they're not his disciples. And for true children of God, such a warning will cause a shuddering in our bones at the thought of perishing. And this is one of the means that God uses to keep us going, however great the cost. We can't imagine of being thrown out. We can't imagine of God's judgment. And so we continue the course. And so as we do church together, this is not a club this is not a game we play. This is not a gimmicky business to try to get anyone to join. The Bible just lays it all out before you. And we, in turn, just are to lay it out in front of others. That apart from Christ, you are a sinner who is under the condemnation of God. But that God has made a way for you to be forgiven in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And all who repent, who believe in him, who trust in him, will indeed be forgiven of their sin. And such people are made new within and are called disciples. And Jesus lays out for us what such people, what disciples, what we can expect, what it will cost, what we will endure. And the thing is, it is worth it. There's nowhere else to go. There's no one else to turn to for forgiveness. There's no one else who can grant us eternal life. Moreover, it is our good 
to live under the rule of the King of Kings. He is our prophet. He tells us the words that are true because we don't know. He is our priest who has offered none other than his own body that we might be forgiven. And he intercedes for us now before the Father. And he is our king. He is our Lord. He knows best. His ways are right. And what's more, our great hope is that there is life beyond this one. We lay up treasures now for the time when we will forever be with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. And so what grace has been shown to us, it is worth anything that might come our way, any cost to us in this earthly life. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us, that teaches us in what is right, what is true. Father, may this truly be our guide. And may we see, even in this, laying out the cost, may we see that it is good. May we find joy in this. That as your people, we get to live under the reign of our Lord Jesus, our great Savior. God, I pray that you would cause us to delight in this. That we would find joy even in the midst of suffering. Even when we suffer for being a Christian, that we would rejoice in it. Knowing that we stand with Christ, we belong to you. Give us eyes of faith. Father, may we hold loosely to everything, to all the things that we have. We're grateful for how you've blessed us and provided for us. Father, may we not make idols of these things. May we give ourselves to you and to your kingdom May we faithfully do what you've called us to do, serving you in our jobs, serving you in our homes, serving you with one another in this church. Whatever we've been called to do, may we lay our lives down for you. May we see that it's good. May we take great joy in this. Father, encourage your people even as we leave from this place. Strengthen us where we are weak. May each of us see this and have ears to hear. May each of us gladly and joyfully live under the Lordship of Christ. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in ignorance. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.